This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone, and welcome to episode 236 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Robert Leonard. Robert is a real estate investor and host of the Millennial Investing Podcast, hosted by the Investors Podcast Network. In this episode, we'll be talking about how to get started investing in real estate and what metrics to use to determine your target market. We'll also be going over the key lessons that Robert has learned from his time hosting his podcast. So if you're a brand new investor and you don't know where to start, then you need to listen to this episode. And this real estate market is still incredibly hot. So if you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan for rental properties with rates as low as 4%, then you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener, and I'll give you a discount on our processing fees. And now, on to the show. Robert, thank you so much for being on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let's know who you are and tell us what you do. Sean, thanks so much for having me. I'm not really sure how to define myself, I guess, but a podcaster, entrepreneur, side hustler, investor kind of all of the above. Yeah, awesome. How did you get started? All right, so I'll try and keep it a little bit short, but I do go back pretty far when I talk about these journeys because I think it differentiates myself a little bit. And I think when we we hear journeys of financial influencers, podcasters, etc., the stories are often very similar. So I like to share this little story that makes me a little bit different. And so I go back to when I was 4 years old, I started racing motocross. My my dad was a single dad. But he raced himself, so it was kind of in my blood when I was born to to be a racer. And so I raced for about ten years, and I was I almost went pro in ATV racing. And then when I was fourteen years old, that dream actually got ripped away from me. My dad ended up making me stop racing. And up until then, I was like an up and coming prospect, like you could think of major league sports that way. And so I didn't really have a backup plan. I didn't plan on going to college. Nobody in my family went to college. So it wasn't really expected of me to go to school. And so I just planned on being a motocross racer. That's all I planned on doing. And so when that fell apart, I, f- I had to figure out something to do. And so I was like, well, I'm really good with math and I like money. So why don't I combine the two and, and study finance? And so I ended up going to college, studying finance, ended up getting really invested and interested in Warren Buffett. And so I got really deep into studying the stock market. And I did that for probably 8 to 10 years. And I always had an interest in real estate, but I always thought you had to be a billionaire or multimillionaire to invest in real estate. So I figured I would make all my money in the stock market. Then I'd start to get interested in real estate when the time came. And then when I was going into college, my dad said to me, when you graduate, you're going to have to pay me rent. And I thought that that was a reasonable request, but I didn't really want to do it. And so I said to him and all my friends and family, I said, I'm going to buy a house when when I graduate college so that I can just move there and I don't have to pay you any rent. And, you know, they all kind of just laughed and thought I was crazy because none of them had really ever bought houses. My dad bought his first house, but not until he was in his 40s. Nobody made any kind of investments. So to them, it was crazy that a 20, 21 year old kid was going to be able to do this. And so that kind of lit a fire under me. Ended up working almost my whole time in college. Ended up buying my first house when I was a senior in college. And I didn't, I don't want to portray this like I knew it was going to be some great investment. I definitely did not do it as an investment. I, was purely doing this just so I didn't have to pay my dad rent because I still didn't think I could be a real estate investor at this point. I was just didn't want to pay him rent. And so I ended up living there. It was a two bedroom condo and I rented out one of the bedrooms and it was rented for like $700, $750 a month. And my all in cost with HOA, mortgage, insurance, taxes was about $1,150. So I was living for like $350, $400 a month, somewhere in there. And I said, this is, this is pretty cool. And I realized that I wasn't that smart and I couldn't be the first person to ever think of this. So I ended up searching it, found out that there was this whole strategy around it called house hacking. And that's when I found bigger pockets. And that's when I realized that there are thousands and thousands of people doing what I wanted to do, real estate investing, and they were no different than me. And so I went down this rabbit hole of studying and studying and studying. And I realized that I could do it even at a young age. And so I dove in. The rest is kind of history from there. Started investing in real estate, house hacked a couple more times, ended up starting a couple podcasts. And that's led me to leave my, my nine to five W2 job 
at uh, 26 on my 26th birthday. And that's where I'm at today. That sounds like an awesome story. Um, can you go a little bit into, I guess, your first little hiccup there? What made your dad make you stop racing if you had such a you know, prominent career in it? And also, he's the one who introduced it to you in the first place. It was really dangerous. And so a lot of... We actually had a couple people that were close to us either pass away. We had one person pass away and then a couple had gotten paralyzed. And so it was it's a really dangerous sport. And so my dad was looking at it as he he just couldn't see his 14-year-old kid. If that ever happened to me, he he couldn't live with himself. And so he just he just was done. He just said, you, you can't do this anymore. And so what I was actually racing at the time was ATV motocross. And so there's also dirt bike motocross, which is what a lot of people are more familiar with. Dirt bike motocross is a lot bigger than ATV motocross. And at the time when I was racing ATV motocross, it was probably the biggest that it's ever been even to this point. And so my dad kind of saw that the industry of ATV motocross was kind of on a decline and he also saw people getting hurt and paralyzed. And so he just, he couldn't, he couldn't find the value in, in me continuing down that path of potentially getting hurt with, with the future of the industry being uh, very questionable. And, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to see because fast forward 10 years, 12 years later, the ATV motocross industry is almost completely evaporated. I mean, it's, it, it still exists, but it's, it's barely there. And so from that perspective, from the finance, from the financial or business perspective, my dad certainly made the right, the right call. Of course, we can't say whether I would have got hurt or not, but the industry certainly has gone on a massive decline on the ATV side, uh, like my dad predicted. Yeah. And also when you said when you first got into investing, you were you know, getting into like Warren Buffett stuff and you were learning a lot about stocks. What made you want to transition away from stocks, I guess, more into the real estate field? I always, I'm not really sure where it came from, but I always had an interest in real estate. I just never thought I could do it. So I figured, well, I could start in stocks because you can buy a stock for $10 or $50 or whatever. There's very low barriers to entry. Whereas with real estate, you know, it seemed like you needed a hundred thousand dollar down payment, et cetera, et cetera. And so I always just kind of I was interested, but I just put it on the back burner. I figured stocks I could do this more easily not easily, but I could get into it more easily. And so that's pretty much why I started there. Do you still invest in stocks at all right now? Absolutely. Uh, a lot. Okay. So would you say like your portfolio is maybe fifty percent real estate and fifty percent stocks or is it a different kind of breakdown there? It depends how you want to calculate that. A lot of people ask me that question and it depends, right? If you want to say the total value of my stocks versus the total value of all my real estate, I'd have technically more value in real estate because the properties themselves, you use leverage, et cetera. I could buy a property with 20% down. So it's a little bit different. If you want to just use equity in these properties, I would say it's it's probably pretty close to 50-50. But if you use just the market value of the properties or the assets themselves, there's a lot more in real estate, but I think the equity way is the right way to think about it. And so I'd say I'm pretty split about 50, 50. Yeah, I agree. I would say the equity way is the better way to do it. Just because like, if you have a lot of leverage on the property, it doesn't mean you suddenly have, you know, millions of dollars in real estate or yeah, exactly. in assets. You know what I mean? Like it's not your money. It's the bank's money. Um, Cause I mean, the reason why I ask is because I go to a lot of meetup events and we, we meet some really like gung ho real estate investors. And then once they, you know, quote unquote, find their way, they like sell everything they have. They, they cash out their retirement accounts to then buy real estate. And personally, I'm still, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced, you know, like, yeah, real estate is great, but I still think you can make a lot of money with stocks. And in fact, like most of the like, billionaires right out there, it's because they have equity in these big companies, not really because of their giant real estate portfolios. So, um, I yeah, know, I completely agree. Yeah, completely agree. hundred percent. And that's one of the reasons why I started my own podcast about real estate was because there are some great podcasts out there, bigger pockets. And, and there's a bunch of them. Yours, Sean, yours is great. I mean, there's a lot of them out there, but what I found as a listener was that anytime one, either they would just completely avoid stocks or if they did talk about it, it was instantly shut down. Like you should never have any allocation to stocks. And it was just very abrupt. And I found that odd because I think there's room in everybody's portfolio for both. And Maybe you're not going to be the next Warren Buffett. Maybe you're not going to go pick individual stocks. Maybe you just buy a diversified low-cost index fund ETF that holds 500 companies. And, and that's fine. That's your exposure to the stock market. But I think that to just completely shut off either asset class is, is a bad idea. And it's interesting because you really only see it from real estate investors. I don't see stock investors saying stocks are the only way. You know, Real estate is bad. I only see real estate investors 
saying real estate is the only way, not stocks. And so it's this interesting dynamic. I personally think it's the wrong way to think about it. I think you should have allocation to both. Yeah, I agree. And the same, same. We're about 50-50 of our stock portfolio as well as our real estate investing portfolio. Now, you also mentioned that you got your first property in college. How you managed to pull that off? So I had actually just graduated, but yeah, it was it was literally like the same month that I graduated that I bought the property. But the way I, I did it was I worked throughout college. And so I saved up some money and I bought a property that I needed about roughly fifteen to $20,000 to close with down payment, closing costs, etc. What I did was I had learned about a seller credit. And so I negotiated a seller credit so that I could reduce the amount of cash that I actually had to bring to the table so that I could afford it. And so I ended up only having to bring like seven, eight, nine thousand, something like that to the table to actually close the deal. And that might be a lot of money to to some people, but in the grand scheme of things, seven to nine thousand dollars isn't a ton of money. And I was actually able to save that while I worked in college. And so that's how I funded it. But in terms of of the loan, when I about a week after I graduated high school, I started working at a credit union. And when you work at a credit union, they require not every credit union, but the one I worked at, they required you to go through a week or two week training on personal finance because if you're going to be managing people's not managing people's money, but handling people's money on a daily basis, they want to make sure you have your personal finances in order so that you're not, you know, you're not tempted to steal money or, you know, do anything wrong. And so they went through this extensive training. I learned all about credit and I was super young when I learned that. So thankfully, I literally, this is kind of a funny story. As soon as I was 18, on my 18th birthday, I stayed up till 12.01 AM on my birthday and I opened my first credit card. I hit submit. I had everything filled out on the online app. And then as soon as 12.01 hit, I hit submit, open my first credit card because I knew how important credit was going to be. At this point, I didn't know how important it would be in real estate. I just knew how important it would be in my life. And so I did that. And so when I got to the point of when I needed a mortgage, I had already worked at the credit union for three years. I had that job history. I also had the financial knowledge. I ended up working my way up through the credit union. I ended up becoming a loan officer, started to actually underwrite and approve or deny loans. So I kind of knew how that process was going to work. I already had my credit score going for two or three years by the time I got to that point. And so it all just kind of came together in, in that I really... You know, I I didn't get lucky. I worked hard and made sure I had everything in in a row so that I could I could do it. And funny enough, when I I applied for the first mortgage, the mortgage guy said that I had the most credit history from the youngest person they've ever seen. And so, yeah. just a little interesting tidbit. That's so cool. I mean, I wish I had that kind of like personal finance course when I was younger. You know, like we have economics classes in high school, but it's really not the same, right? And uh, like, why do you think that we don't teach this? more often to like younger younger folk incentives and what i mean by that is if you teach it in high school what people would realize is that they don't need to spend so much money to go to college and then college enrollment will drop and therefore you know it's a it's this chain of event and some would say this is a conspiracy but i believe that if you look at incentives the public school system is just not incentivized to make highly financially literate and educated people when it comes to finances and that could go to the banks, right? If you have good personal finances, the banks aren't going to get as many loans. You're not going to go into credit card debt. You're not going to have overdraft fees. There was a, a statistic recently that said in the US, recent in 2020, banks had like a couple billion dollars in just overdraft fees. I mean, the banks don't want billions of dollars of revenue to go away. And so we're incent the, the public school system is just not incentivized to provide this type of education. And, and you could look at this a couple of different ways, but that, that's my personal opinion on it. I agree. After you got your first property and you were house hacking, you started joining bigger pockets. I guess tell us what did you do next? Like how did you get into your first real estate investment property? So I kept studying, kept studying, and I really just didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't making a ton of money straight out of school. I had some student loans and I, I made some not so great financial decisions as well. So I I wasn't putting myself in the best spot to buy an investment property. And so I ended up selling that house. I did make a profit. And then I went into another... It's it's technically classified as a house hack, but it's more of a live and flip. So I bought a property that I knew I could do some renovations to improve the the value of it and then eventually sell it. And I could do all that while I lived there. And so I did that for my second property. And then when I sold that, I moved into a duplex as another house hack. And somewhere between that second house hack and the third house hack is when I was able to save enough money to buy my first rental. And my first rental was long distance. 
And from there, I've ended up buying four or five rentals since uh, long distance. And so I've done three house hacks. I'm in a house hack right now, and I own four single family rentals. And uh, are your single family rentals all in one market or are you kind of scattered throughout the country? They're all in one market. They're all in one market in Texas. Okay. And how did you pick that one market in Texas? So that was actually a pretty elaborate process. So I had a guy on the show. I know you're familiar with him, Sean. His name is Neil Bawa on my podcast. And he talked about this really data-driven approach to real estate and being an accountant and a financial guy and just really interested with numbers, his approach to real estate really spoke with me. Typically, people look at data and, or excuse me, cities, and they just try to guess like, oh yeah, this seems like it's gentrifying. This seems like it's getting better. That just didn't really speak to me. But when Neil said he has all these numbers and these data points that lead to these types of things, I said, okay, that really makes a lot of sense to me. And so I really dove deep into his strategy. Basically, long story is he has these six demographic data points that lead to uh, good markets for rental properties. And there was, he gave you the framework, but he didn't have a resource to get all those data. You had to go data points. You had to go to five or six different websites to get the data. And so I didn't really like that. So I paid a software developer or coder. I'm not sure exactly what you call them, but I paid him to scrape all of these websites and get the data points for 7,000 cities across the US so that I could analyze them and find out what cities were best. And so I analyzed 7,000 cities in an Excel spreadsheet, ranked them 1 to, uh, to 7,000. And then I picked the top 25. And I said, let's go through with my business partner. I said, let's go through these and let's see which ones have inventory that we're interested in buying. So do they even have any properties available to purchase? And two, are they the right type of properties? If it passed that check, then we looked to see if there was any real estate professionals there. This usually wasn't an issue, but we wanted to make sure there was good property managers in case we needed it, good electricians, plumbers, handymen, etc. And so if any of the top 25 cities didn't meet these two criteria, we crossed it off. And we were left with a list of maybe 10 or 15 cities out of the 25. And so we just started making offers on all 10 or 15 of those. And I think we had 13 offers out at one time across a bunch of different cities from Texas to Idaho to Alabama, to North Carolina, Ohio, Tennessee. We were all over. And our basic philosophy was wherever we get our first deal, we'll continue to try and scale and grow there. And ultimately, we ended up on the small little market in Texas. And the first property went really, really well. We found some really good team members and... We said, let's just continue to grow here. And we're up to, we bought three properties last month, uh, in the last quarter. So we're up to four there and we're hoping to buy some more this year. That's cool. How long ago did you have Neil on your show? So Neil's been on my show three times. So various times. The most recent episode was just a couple of weeks ago. Okay, got it. Because I, I saw that episode with Neil right before I came on your show and I was like, oh, did you all this with that short time frame? But I guess you had him on like maybe a year ago or so to build out your software and all that stuff, right? Yeah, he was probably on almost two years ago. He was one of my first guests. And then probably about a year after that. And then probably within the last couple of weeks. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I know Neil personally, like I go to his meetups here locally in the Bay Area. And then I've seen him speak at other people's meetups. One thing that's interesting is he always has like amazing data and he can show it, right? He shows great presentations with all the data points. And, you know, I always ask him like, hey, it's great that we have all this data, but like, how do you then go about analyzing it correctly? Right, you, two people can have the same data and then have different conclusions because they're analyzing it differently. Um, I guess what were your metrics to, to deciding what was a good market and what was a, a bad market? I pretty much just copied what he did. I, I knew I wasn't that smart. I knew a smart someone much smarter than me, Neil, had already figured this out and he already knew what worked. So I pretty much just copied him. And so what he looks at is things like population growth, income growth, property value growth job growth and crime levels and trends. And so basically, I just looked at those six demographic data points, used his philosophy on which ones were a little bit more important than the others, and basically graded each one and said, which ones overall, when you take all six into consideration, is the best. And that's pretty much all I did. Yeah. So we did the very same thing. Um, again, I had Neil on my podcast too, asked him very in-depth, like, hey, what are you looking at? He's like, oh, we want to see that you know population growth has grown by 20%. Um, house prices have increased by 40% or something like that. And we take all these metrics. And like you said, from different websites, right? We have to go to the Department of Numbers website to find the CES job data to see the growth year-over-year trends. And then we have to go to city-data.com to then find the demographics data. And you put it all into this giant Excel spreadsheet. 
And it's a lot of work, especially if you have you know, 3,000 cities to go through. So we actually hired virtual assistants to do all that for us and they manually input all the numbers. Um, and then from there, just like you said, you scrub the list, you filter them based on your criteria. You want to make sure that as many like of these targets are hit. So you filter them with greens. And then of that list, maybe it's only five to 10 that actually meet your criteria. Some of them are going to be pretty expensive too. Some of them, the median price are going to be in the 400,000 range. So it won't let you scale. They probably won't hit the 1% rule. So then you have to find the ones that have lower price homes. And then from there is probably only two or three markets that you can go in. Yeah, that's very similar to what I did. Uh, what I ended up, I started that way. I also filtered the median value so that the median value was below a certain amount so that I could scale, like you said. And then the other thing I did was rather than seeing, yes, this meets this criteria, yes, this meets this criteria, or no, it doesn't, I said, well, what if something doesn't quite meet it here, but it's super close? And then it's super high on all these other ones. So basically what I did was I weighted each variable and said, what has the highest weighted average across all these data points? And then rank the cities that way. Very similar approach to what you just said, but more or less, we're all using, we're both using the Neil Bawa strategy. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it's great that he like shares that with us. I think it's fair to share like those strategies, right? But then when it comes to the actual markets, especially if you did all this work to find it yourself, then maybe you could keep that to your chest. You can go in a little bit about your actual investments. So, like, what are you? I guess, what are you buying them for? What are they renting for? And how are you financing these deals? Sure. So, I'll start with the first one. It was single-family rental. It was turnkey. This was two years ago. This was back in 2019. It was the first one. And my approach to this was: this is going to be my first rental. I've never done this before. I've done house hacks, so I kind of know how it works, but I've never had an actual traditional rental. And I'm going long distance. I'm going 2,000 miles away in a city I've never been to, working with people I've never met, with properties I've never seen. So I want to keep the risk as low as possible. And so my goal was... And the way I define risk is being able to... Is not necessarily the purchase price or down payment, but rather how much the mortgage payment is every month. And the reason I do that is because if you have a property that has a $500 mortgage payment, if everything goes wrong... If, as long as you can pay that $500 mortgage, you're not going to lose that property. Your risk is pretty low. But if you have a property that has a $3,000 mortgage, if you have to pay $3,000 a month, I would say that's a lot riskier and a lot harder to do. Obviously, it depends on your income and your financial situation. But So what I was doing was I was looking for the lowest mortgage payment that I could find. But I knew enough about real estate that I wasn't willing to buy in a bad area to do that. Typically, if you're going to find a low price property, it's going to be in a bad area. And so what I ended up doing was finding a property for only 65000 It was turnkey, didn't really need anything. It has, I believe it's three bed, one bath. Don't quote me on that. But it has something like that. A single family house has a garage, a nice fenced in yard. It's in a great school district. It's in a great area in this market in Texas. And so we ended up buying it for 65000 And it rents for nine fifty currently. And we're actually renewing the lease this month. And we're probably going to bump that to like 10, 1,050, maybe 1,100. So on a $65,000 property, this is almost a 2% rule. And this was... this Again, this was back in 2019. But so people are like, oh, those deals don't exist today. And you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. But people said the same thing in 2019. Back in 2019, people were telling me, you cannot buy good deals like this off the MLS. I bought this deal straight off the MLS, turnkey, moving ready, ready to go. And so that was that was that first deal. It's been great since. We've collected some pet fees and and so that was the first property that gave us a lot of confidence. And then we actually didn't buy anything for a year or two and then we just bought 3 uh, in March of 2021 and they were all off the MLS again. But what we did this time was we actually bird them all. And so we did light burrs on them. We didn't want to do full rehabs or full guts or anything like that, but we were comfortable with doing a light, light burr. And so, and the reason we were comfortable with it was because from that first property, we learned that we could really trust our agent. We learned that we have handymen, we have plumbers, we have all these different people that we've used to fix things on our current property that we could use to do these light rehabs on these new properties that we're going to buy. And so we ended up buying three properties. One of them was for about 70000 one was about 90-ish thousand. And then the other one was like 120,000. When you said you buy three properties, were they from the same seller? Nope. All separate. All off the MLS, separate sellers. One was like one week, one was the next week, and one was the next week. They were like almost all three consecutive weeks. 
what made you want to go just like boom, 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 three at the same time after not buying for two years? Just kind of, I mean, we were kind of looking and, but we were being, we were more passively looking. We weren't like super looking hard. We both, we all had some, my business partner and I had different things going on in life. I had a son and then I was working on the podcast. I was really, really invested in the podcast. So I was really busy doing that. He was working. He actually had a daughter. He, I think he changed his job. And so we just, we both had a lot of things going on that we were other business ventures and other investments that we were really focused on. And I mean, quite frankly, I didn't have a lot of money right away to start because I had put all my money into the first house hack or the house hack that I was in. And then also my first rental. So I needed a little bit of time to, to come up with some money. So all of these things together, we just weren't ready to buy for a while. And then we called our agent and we, we had stayed in touch with him throughout the year or half, two years. Uh, and so we just said to him, Hey, we're, we're ready to go. And we got some money. We're ready to buy some properties. He's like, all right, I'll send you guys what I got. And so when things started to come across this table, you just started sending them to me. And uh, yeah, we were just like, yep, we'll take that one. We'll take that one. We'll take that one. And uh, just kind of worked out that way. Are you doing conventional financing for those properties? We're like 20% down and then you finance the rest? No. So the first one we did, we did conventional 20% down, regular 30-year fixed debt. Now, these last three, we got a lot more creative. And I may or may not recommend this to other people, uh, especially if you're doing your first property. But once you're a little bit more experienced, this debt actually worked well for us. So what we found is that we found a hard, almost like a hard money lender within a, a credit union. So basically what they did was they said, give us a list of what you're going to do to the property. And then we'll appraise it based on what the property looks like now with those renovations. And so they say, okay, let's just take the $70,000 property. They said with our repairs that we were going to do, it was going to be worth about 95000 And I forget exactly how much we put into that, maybe like five to 7000 in repairs. So what they did was they were willing to lend up to... And they actually go to 85% loan to value. So they would lend 85% of that new appraised value. So they would give us 85% of the 95000 And whatever that came out to, let's just say it was probably roughly 87,000, somewhere in there, 85 to 87,000. So we purchased the property for 70. So we used that 85 to purchase the property for 70. And then we used the rest to fund the rehab. And so we were into that deal for $0 down. Now, the other two, we weren't into the deal for $0, but we were into it for much less than we could have been. And so basically, you just use 85% of the appraised value to purchase the property as much of that to fund the repairs as you want or as you can. And then you just pay the difference yourself out of pocket. Wow. So do they just give you the cash at closing to then do what you want to do with it? No. So what they do is they will, they wire the money to the buyer or the seller, just like they would in a normal transaction, whatever the purchase price is. And then they hold back the amount that you have remaining and that you can use for repairs or, or whatever you want to use it for. And so they kind of keep it in this little fund and they have it noted on the HUD. So they know like exactly how much it is and what, what you're able to get. And so once you get the invoices in for the repairs, you just send them the invoice and they'll give you the money from that fund and just pay the invoice. They'll give you the money and you can pay the invoice. So it's kind of like a draw. Yeah, it's just like a draw. Exactly. Okay. Do, do they send like an inspector over to verify you did work or do they just use invoices to pay you back? So they just use the invoice to pay you back. But what they do... So this is all on a short-term financing. So it's kind of like hard money. So the term technically for this loan is 12 months. But it's not at a super high interest rate. It's only at 5%. So it's not like it's crazy. No points, nothing like that. And so they don't have an inspector go out. They just pay it off the invoice. But then what happens is... What's probably my favorite part is that they can then, on their own end, transition this to uh, long-term financing on their own without having to refinance or reclose. We don't have to pay any more closing costs. We don't pay any more appraisal fees, nothing. They just transition it from a 12-month debt to a little bit creative, but more or less a long-term financing product. And at that point, they'll send out an inspector. Usually it's actually... Because it's such a small credit union, it's actually the VP of lending, the, the VP of commercial lending that'll go out and go to the properties and just kind of check it out. I mean, he doesn't go super detailed, but he just checks it out, make sure it's a good property that the items that we did are checked off. And that's pretty much it. Wow. Um, when you say creative, what do you mean by that? Like for the long-term financing? So it's a five-year term with a 20-year amortization. And so it's mm. not completely 20-year fixed, but every five years, it 
it readjusts. Makes sense. I mean, we are working with some uh, small banks as well over in Georgia for some of our properties. And they're very similar. They can go up to 85% of LTV. Um, I haven't asked them if they can do what you're saying, where they can do um, 85% of the like ARV, basically. That's pretty wild that they would do that for you guys, but that's pretty awesome. But anyways, yeah, same thing. It's like a 20-year schedule. So if you were to pay it off, it would take 20 years. Um, normally, it's like a five-year term. So every five years, you have to refinance. To me, that's kind of scary, right? If in five years, for some reason, the banks don't want to give you a loan anymore, then you basically have to pay it off somehow. But uh, that's why we renegotiated to make it into a 20-year loan. But it's just uh, every five years, the rate adjusts, like interest rate-wise. So it's like a 5-5 five, five arm, basically. Yeah, I, you know, I thought about that risk a lot. And I wrote about it recently. And on the surface, it does sound kind of risky. But when I really sat down to think about it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't seem that risky to me. And the reason for that is the bank isn't really incentivized to foreclose on us with this loan specifically. So they own the debt. And so the reason that they would have... Let's walk through the reasons that they'd have to foreclose. Pretty much the only reason that they'd have to foreclose is if we couldn't pay off the loan at the end of the five years. And so at the, if you can't pay it off at the end of the five years, that means one, you don't have the cash to pay it off yourself. Two, you can't sell the property. Or three, you can't refinance. So I probably won't have the cash to pay off all three of these properties by myself if need be. So that's that's kind of off the table. Is Am I going to be able to sell them all if I had to? That's to be determined. I mean, we'll see what the market's doing in five years. What I, I'm not really super worried about that because they're single family homes. We're not buying these super obscure commercial properties that take six to nine months to sell. We're talking single family homes that relatively sell quickly. Even in the worst of times, they probably sell in 90 days. You know, it's it's not horrible. It's an asset class that's pretty liquid. So I'm not overly concerned about that. And and especially we have equity going into the property. So even if we lose a little bit of value, we're probably not going to be underwater, especially in five years, is my guess. And then three, if we can't refinance, then which I'd be surprised if we can't, especially if we've made the mortgage payments all along. So if we've gone all along for five years, never had any issues, we've made all the mortgage payments on time, accurate with the lender, why wouldn't they just refinance with us at whatever the current rate is? I don't see why they wouldn't be willing to refinance it. And if they can't, probably somebody else would, especially if we have good credit, etc. And if we couldn't sell the property, then what the bank isn't incentivized to take the property because then they couldn't sell it either. Sure, maybe they take a haircut and sell it at half, but we could essentially do the same and do a short sale. So I just don't see the incentives being aligned for the bank to want to foreclose on that property. My guess is that they would just refinance because we're going to be a good borrower. And if they're if we're not, then I just don't see how they'd be able to sell the property if we couldn't. Yeah. I mean, that's what my lender is telling me, basically. They're like, hey, everyone does it. Everyone does it at like a five-year term. But I'm still just like, I prefer the 20 year term. I mean, if I was doing this on a hundred unit apartment building, like all the syndicate, I mean, all the syndicators have done it for decades, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's and not, they do it on like 10 year terms too, right? Five year exactly. terms, 10 year terms. Exactly. They, they do the same thing. Way. And that would even make me more concerned because you can't sell a syndication or a, a large apartment building that quickly. A single family, I mean, I could probably sell these even in the worst of times. So I just don't see it as a massive, massive risk for these types of properties. Yeah. I mean, the only issue is if something happens on like a, a huge economic scale. Where the bank, like, I guess they need their money back, and then they're like, "Nah, like, we're not going to redo this for you. Give us our money back." Um, I guess that kind of happened back in 2008, 2009. Like, the banks would not refinance a lot of these people who had their terms coming up. So, like, I know I have a syndicator, a friend who does hotel syndications, and at an investor meeting, people were asking that they're like, "Oh, you're, you're looking for like a hundred million dollars to do this um, hotel project in New York." What happens in three years if you need to refinance out? And he's like, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. But like that, that is a concern that some investors have when it comes to like, uh, these shorter term loans. I think the quality of those borrowers at that time were different than what we are. I think we're very high quality borrowers. So I, I don't think they'll look at us the same way as they might have some of those people. And also back then, right? Let's say that's the case. They say, we're not going to refinance you. Well, we'll tell them, okay, well, we'll try to refinance somewhere else. And if we can't, then we'll sell the property. And if we can't, we'll tell them that. We'll just tell them, hey, we can't sell this property. And so why are they going to be like, you can't sell it, so we must be able to. You know what I mean? They don't want... The banks aren't in the, in the business of acquiring a property so that they could sell it. They don't want to take 
a possession of this property. They want you to just handle it. And so if we tell them like, listen, we can't sell this. We tried everything we can. I don't think that they're going to be incentivized to be like, all right, well, you couldn't sell it. Let me try and take it over and try and sell it either. You know, And, and of course this happens, right? Foreclosures happen, but I just don't see why they, they would want to do that. I'm going to tell you a quick horror story, um, I guess in the hard money lending industry. So this is not our company, but uh, last year during the pandemic, there was a company that was doing a lot of ground up construction loans. And so a lot of the major builders here in the Bay Area were using them as a hard money lender. And of course, during COVID, like their terms were coming due. And instead of giving them the refi, as doing, like they've been doing business for years, always had a great time with them. But during this period, this hard money lending company was losing a lot of money and uh, they were actually about to go under. So as their last hurrah, they actually filed foreclosures on almost all of their clients and it went on their records. And then they're like, they didn't have to do that, right? But I think when they're having a bad time, they didn't care about their clients. They're like, screw you guys. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mess. Yeah, anyway, it's definitely a huge, it's definitely a risk. I mean, you're 100% <laughs> right. Like, I'm not saying there's no risk because there definitely is a massive risk here. But I just, I don't lose sleep about it because of all those things I just mentioned. And I mean, the big difference, right, is these are single family homes. These aren't uh, multi million dollar like commercial properties or ground up developments or apartment buildings. These are really small single family houses. So yeah, I mean, it is a risk, but I'm not, not overly concerned. Yeah. So let's talk about like how you found this bank in the first place. My agent recommended it. So he's a, an investor and he said, I use, I use these products. I use these, this guy for my, my loans. And so pretty much everybody that we use for those properties in that town, we've gotten from recommendations from him. So lenders, yeah. insurance, uh, plumbers, et cetera. Yeah. Um, that's why I recommend people too. If like, if they're trying to buy things out of state, um, I think the number one component besides finding the area you're going to invest in is to find that first really solid team member because they're going to refer you to all these other great team members as well. A lot of times it's a property manager for us. It was just an agent. So now that you've been investing for a while, um, have you found any like you know pros and cons to investing in single family? Do you have any desires to you know go into multifamily? Yeah, there's pros and cons. When I got into re- uh, rental properties, I said that I would never buy a single family. I said I'd only do multifamily, and then ultimately I ended up buying a single family, and now I own four of them. But we we do have aspirations to get into some more multifamily stuff. But we're not in a major rush right now. What we what we found for the pros of single family that I don't think enough people talk about is that the financing is pretty good on them, especially compared to, I mean, we're getting into some more of the commercial creative stuff. So it's not as good as it could be, but financing for a lot of people, if you can get traditional debt is really good on, on the financing piece. But bigger than that, the piece that a lot of people miss is the quality of the tenants. I think when you start to get in, get into multifamily, even if you buy in a great area, a lot of times the people that are renting an apartment are slightly lower quality than somebody that's going to go rent a, an entire house. And so what we found is that somebody who's renting this entire house it has three or four bedrooms, a garage, it's in a good school district. Typically it's a family. They have they don't want to move, so we have low turnover typically whereas apartments it's typically probably a little bit more high turnover. They're not necessarily looking to stay in the area always. And so what we found is we're getting really high quality tenants. They don't require a lot of maintenance or or management on our end. They don't make they don't trash the property. They, they're very family oriented. And so it just works really well for us. We're able to self-manage these properties because of how high quality the tenants are. And so that has been the biggest piece for us that I think is overlooked with single families is you can typically, as long as you have good screening, you can get great, great tenants. And so the downsides, it's very hard to scale. Like we bought three that last quarter and it's I mean, you're going through the process of all the paperwork and the the headaches of of acquiring a property. And the process is if we we're buying a five unit is no different than buying one of these single family houses. So we essentially bought three five units, but really it was only three single family houses. So we went through the work of buying all these bigger properties, even though they were only small. So it's a lot of work. It doesn't scale well. Those are the big downsides. But the upside is that they're pretty good cash flow. Appreciation is pretty good. Tenants are often great. And so it's a give and take. Uh, we're looking to get into some of the four, five, six, ten 10 unit small multifamily stuff, but we'll see when we get there. How's it been self-managing from far away? Awesome. I mean, it's super easy. Uh, like I said, our tenants are super high quality, so there's not a lot of issues at all. And when there is, they're high quality tenants in the sense that they're responsible 
and we're able to say, okay, here's our plumber. We'll call our plumber and say, hey, or whatever, whoever the person is, electrician, handyman, whatever the situation is. We'll call them. We'll say, hey, we have this. We, you know, we've worked with them, so they know us. But we'll say, hey, can you go fix X, Y, and Z at this property? Here's the tenant's information. Can you just give them a call, schedule the time, give me a call, and let me know what the issue is, and we'll we'll handle the payments and all that. But basically, because it's a single family, they're high quality tenants. They're able to work through this with the. We don't need a property manager in the middle that's calling these people because we can call them ourselves easily. And two, we don't need a property manager in the middle doing the scheduling. We just let let the the contractor talk to to the tenant and they handle it whatever time works best for them. And so there's there's no need for a property manager at that point. And so going forward, are you are you going to continue scaling uh, through single family properties? I'm not sure. Right now, what we're doing, we actually have three things, three or four things we're looking at. One, we're looking at potentially buying some small multifamily, some 5 to 10, 12 unit type stuff. We're, we're really interested in that. But the problem is if we do go that route, we're going to have to go into a different market. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. We're willing and able to go into another market. But we just we really like our agent that we have in Texas. And the market that we're in, all they only have single family. There is no multifamily at all. And the few, few properties that there are are in horrible areas. They're duplexes in awful areas. So we're not interested in those. And it's only a duplex even. So we're going to have to go to a new area, which we're not overly thrilled about, but we'll do it if we have to. Um, the, the other thing we're looking at, we're looking at potentially doing some Airbnb. And so we're starting to really, you know, we're not only focused on just making as much money as we can. We're also really focused on living a life that we want to live. And so one of the ways we can do that is by bar- buying these Airbnb properties in locations that we want a vacation both Ryan, my business partner, and I. So we're saying, okay, we, we both like to vacation in Florida. We both like to vacation in the Carolinas. So why don't we buy an Airbnb in Florida that we can rent out 90% of the year? It'll still be profitable, still cash flow, and we can use it the other 10% of the year for free vacations that are getting paid for by the cash flow of those Airbnb properties. So that's a strategy we're looking at as well. And the other one, this is this is a bit interesting is we're actually looking at RV rentals. And I'm not sure if it falls under real estate or if it's a different kind of business, but I had a guest on my real estate show who's super successful in real estate. And he's starting to get into the real uh, the RV rental business. And it, it, sound, it made a lot of sense to me. Going back to my, my background in motocross, I basically lived in an RV. When you go to these motocross races, that's how we traveled was in an RV. And so I'm super familiar with RVs. I know how they work. I know kind of, you know, I just know a lot about them. And so that's a that's a model that we're interested in as well. And so there's pluses and minuses to those too. But those are kind of the, the different models we're working through. We're not sure if single family is right for us or, or these other three paths might be. So we're still up in the air. And we'll see. That's cool. Like my girlfriend is super interested in getting to Airbnbs. Like we, we've been traveling a lot this year since the post COVID, uh, Las Vegas, like we want to buy an Airbnb in Vegas. We're going to Nashville, Tennessee. We might want to buy one there. Uh, going to Austin, Texas, right? We might want to buy one there. Um, we've seen a lot of our friends do really well with Airbnbs just because you can rent it out for a lot more than if you could, if you just did it for a long-term tenant. Yeah. When things are good, there's no way to beat Airbnb. They just make so, so, so much money. I, I have some friends that I've met through the podcast that they just make so much money through Airbnb. And of course, that's great. You know, that's a piece that we like, but more so we want to have these properties all over the US and eventually maybe even internationally that we can just go vacation at where they pay for themselves. And if you look at yeah. the rich, they might not call it like Airbnb because they're probably not Airbnb it. But if you look like they the their vacation houses are a lot of times they're rented out when they're not there. And so I mean it's a strategy that's used by a lot of people. It's just not often talked about. Yeah. I mean, I had a friend, he has a like a vacation rental in Hawaii, and apparently his next door neighbor is Bill Gates supposedly <laughs> but i mean that's cool like so he rents it out for most of the year and then on the times that they want to go they block it off and they go to hawaii for a week it's exactly nice. it's awesome and yeah. you could have five or six of these across the u.s seven i mean however many you want and that's right yeah it's awesome and so that's something we're, we're really interested in yeah our goal eventually is to buy them in like europe even Same. just like so we can go travel uh, out of the country yeah we looked in aruba um he really likes aruba so we looked there and yeah we're, we're interested in all over we'll probably start in the u.s and, and scale but yeah, we'll see. That's awesome. So Robert, I want to give you some time to talk about your podcast as well. Like, What is your podcast about and how did you get started with this podcast? Yeah, so the podcast, there's it's one podcast, but it has two segments. And so on Mondays, it's called Real Estate 101. That's the segment. 
And then on Wednesdays, we have another segment called Millennial Investing. On the Real Estate 101 show on Mondays, we talk about... We basically help new investors get their first or next couple deals. And so it's for somebody that has no deals or has just done a couple deals. If somebody's looking to buy a 100-unit apartment building, probably not the best show for them. But if you're looking to house hack or buy your first couple of rentals or buy your next few rentals, that's what we talk about there. We Everything that you need to do that, we talk about on the show. And then millennial investing is my other passion, which we talked about is stock investing. So millennial investing is all about the stock market and personal finance. We also talk about entrepreneurship and side hustles, but the primary focus is investing in the stock market with some ancillary topics that help you be a better stock investor, like side hustles, personal finance, et cetera. Yeah. So I know you've had you know dozens, if not hundreds of people on your show over the past few years. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the key insights you've gotten from all of these guests that come on your show? Yeah. So we just crossed this week, 100 episodes published on the millennial investing segment. I think the real estate show, I think we're in the 70s. And so we're, we're nearing 200. And then there's been some episodes that haven't been published. So we're probably around the 200 mark. It's really hard to distinguish great advice from 200 different guests. But I think some of the biggest things that I've learned and I haven't necessarily implemented or, or taken action on myself, but some of the most common themes are to really focus. And you know, throughout this conversation, you've heard me talk about single family rentals. You've heard me talk about potentially Airbnb and RVs and multifamily. So you can tell I'm struggling with, with focus. And so focus is a big thing. Uh, one of the other big things I've learned is is humility, and it's you just realize how much you don't know. And you talk to all these, you know, you feel like you know a lot, and then you talk to these really, really, really smart people that are a lot smarter than you, and specifically me. And you just realize that you just you don't know a lot. And so those are a couple of the biggest things. I mean, you could dive into these tactical strategies, right? We've I've learned a lot about self directed IRAs. I've learned a lot about specific stock investing strategies. There's a couple different things we can go that way, but. Focus, humility, hard work that I mean, really, these guys that and the other I guess I'd say the other biggest thing is that these guys and girls are are not special. Like I've talked to Kevin O'Leary, I've talked to Jesse Itzler, Lewis Howes, Robert Kiyosaki, like some really big names. And you go into this meeting thinking they're like just this god, you know, like they 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 have something that you don't. And you just you talk to them and you realize I don't know if it comes through necessarily in the episodes, but as the host, it comes through that they're, they're just a normal person. And maybe they were dealt some cards that gave them a little bit of an advantage. But for the most part, they came from nothing. They built their businesses just like you have the opportunity to do. And and they were able to do it and you could do it too. And, and a funny story, I talked to Kevin O'Leary. He was in like sweatpants and a t-shirt in his lake house, actually in New Hampshire where I live. And so, you know, these guys, they're just normal people. You realize it, it's a bit exciting, but also humbling at the same time because you realize that you're you're nowhere compared to them but you're also excited because you have the opportunity to get to where they are and that they're nothing special. So those are some of the biggest things. Obviously like I said there's a lot more tactical stuff like strategies that we talk about but high level I'd say that's the biggest things. That's actually pretty inspiring because if you think about it they're just regular folk. I remember going to my first like real estate meetup events and seeing these people making millions of dollars a year which I thought was impossible right like wow these guys are actually making millions of dollars a year. And then you find about their background and you're like, oh, this guy barely graduated high school, dropped out of college, um, didn't really have any good job until they were 40. And then somewhere in their 40s, they figured out about wholesaling and flipping houses. And now they're making million dollars a year in their 50s. Exactly. They can do it. Why can't we? And then even more than that, I don't have a specific guest in this case, but there's been examples where I'm, I'm interviewing a high profile guest and their dog will run up and jump on their lap or their kid will run in the room. And there's no problem with that, but it's it's that, you know, wow, they're real people too, right? Like my dog is, I don't have a dog right now, but I'm just saying like, if I had a dog right there, like everybody, we're all just normal people. They got dogs, they have kids, they have, you know, they have stuff going on and, and sometimes they have to reschedule events. And, you know, it's like, they, they often will tell you why, like, oh, I got to go to my kid's soccer game or I got to go meet my kid's teacher, or, you know, whatever the situation is. And you just realize like, they're just normal people, you know, they're just normal people that have done extraordinary things. And, uh, yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. I, I've realized that I'm an ordinary dude trying to build an extraordinary life. And that's what I'm working towards. So I guess what's next for you and, and you know, with your show? I don't know. I get asked that a lot. I don't really know, honestly, what the next what the next step is. I gotta I think I've been really working on focus. And so that's that's what's next for me is really defining what focus means, defining what I really want to focus on, 
and and going from there. What are you going to do to get that focus? I'm not sure. I sit down, <laughs> I journal a lot. I, I spend a lot of time thinking. I, I have meetings with mentors. I write, like I said, I write and journal a lot. I read a lot. And so I just, it's a lot of self-reflection deciding really what, what I really want to do, what I really want to be working on. And, and also why I want to do certain things. Like, why am I doing that? Am I doing that because I actually want to do it? Or am I doing that because I want something else that I think it's going to lead to something else. And if it's something else, how else can I get there? Or am I doing it just because I, it'll put off a perception of, of what other people think of me. And do I really care what other people think of me? So it's all these types of self-reflection, reading, journaling, meeting with mentors type things that I'm really, really working on. Yeah. I mean, I brainstorm a lot all the time too, because I think we all face these similar like questions and also like thoughts. If, if what we're doing is really something that hits our true values and if it's worth like the sacrifice and time to do these things. So yeah, definitely good on you that you're spending the time and effort to actually go through and plan all that out. So I just continue to go through the motions. Yeah. I think about, I've studied and, and Warren Buffett talks about it a lot. And that's why I've studied it is he talks about opportunity cost and it's good in, in that it helps me make better decisions, but it's sometimes crippling because it's hard because I sit down and I think, okay, I could do this. I mean, I'm, I'm drowning in opportunities. And so I have to really think of what is the opportunity cost? If I'm going to take option A versus option B, what is the op- opportunity cost of, of B? What could B become? You know, B is probably good on its own, but is, is B better than A? And, and so it's this really... What is the best use of your time, right? You have 10 minutes. What is the best use of that 10 minutes? Or you have a day. What is the best thing you can do with that day? And if you choose that, recognize what is the opportunity cost that you're giving up for the other things that you're not working on. And so with the podcast, right? Do I take a day to work on the podcast or do I work on my real estate business or do I work on something else? And so it's, it's really hard. And opportunity cost is, is important to think about being a good capital allocator. And, and what I really want to do is, is hard. Yeah. You know, one thing that I've gotten really good at is just saying no. Like I can That's say no to people I'm and I, I don't even, I don't even think about it anymore. I'm just like, no, I don't want to do it and I don't care. <laughs> Yeah, I, I that's something that's that's a very good point. I actually should have mentioned that. One of the things I'm working on is is saying no. Well, awesome. Robert, thank you so much again for coming on the show. How can people find out more about you? The best place is to reach me, I guess, would be the podcast. You could reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter. Username is at the Robert Leonard. You can also find you can find the podcast at theinvestorspodcast.com. Social media is probably the best way to reach me. And uh, I answer all my DMs. Sometimes it takes a little while. I do I do get a lot of them, but I will try to respond to every single one of them. And uh, so if you have any questions, if there's anything I can help you with, please do reach out. Robert, thanks again for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.